Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. I'm going We're going to get into uh, chapter three of James Montgomery's The United States is Still a British Colony. Chapter one was eponymously called uh, The United States is Still a British Colony. Chapter two was called Bend Over, America. And now chapter three is Will the Real Government Please Stand Up? Here we go. After writing British Colony, Parts 1 and 2, I was amazed how some people react when confronted with information that goes against their prior programming. It is as if to even consider it was a threat to their mental well-being. They were going to deny any truth that threatens their belief structure. The good news is those with such a reaction were of the minority. This is promising because it shows Americans can still think past years of incomplete teaching concerning our history. Those in the negative believe the information had to be bogus, and they could not believe the government could wrong them. So this third part is for them. To show them that government has and does lie to them and violates their trust on major issues. As always, this information and supporting documents are given so the reader can form their own opinion. Other writers, I will mention one since he uses a pen name, the informer, has also done extensive research on this subject and has been forced to come to the same conclusions. Check out the latest work of the informer, his new book called The New History of America. The information the informer and I have found is so clear and undeniable, even the doubting Thomases will have to face reality. Not to make us right, but for America to become aware of lost history. I will begin with the touchstone of the Patriot community, the 14th Amendment. Everyone knows about the citizenship issue. I raised another issue concerning the fourth section of the 14th Amendment in British Colony, Part 1, and issues regarding Section 3 in court documents found in footnote 13. Doubting Thomases think this is a conspiracy theory. In the new propaganda movie called Conspiracy Theory with Mel Gibson, so this was written back in 97 when that movie came out, the establishment wants you to think that anyone that believes there is someone behind the scenes calling the shots is mentally unbalanced. Thanks, Mel. 
What the Doubting Thomases do not realize is this is a big puzzle and is hard to recognize and can be incorrectly viewed. The biggest problem is it can be put together more than one way, totally changing its appearance and outcome. The Doubting Thomases may say, how is it that you think you have the correct pieces? My answer is, I shoot a lot of archery. In archery, you shoot for the bullseye, not the less important areas outside the bullseye. You have to stay focused on what are the core issues, not the side issues, the collateral issues where valuable time is lost. I conduct my research in this way. Two, I rely on God Almighty to keep me pointed in the right direction. Three, I always tell you not to take my word without checking the subject out for yourself. Most people, if plagued with a recurring headache, take a pain reliever and the headache appears to go away, when in fact all you have done is deal with a symptom that caused the headache. You have not dealt with the actual cause. Many patriots today are dealing with the symptoms, like taxes, driving versus traveling, and the zip code, etc., etc. All are important issues and have their place, but they are not the root cause of the problem. Until the cause of the affliction is researched, exposed, and then removed, nothing will change. The lawful, de jure, United States government, uh, lowercase u in United, which was created by the 1787 Constitution slash Treaty between the states, was made null and void by the fraudulent Congress that passed the 14th Amendment. This is a bold and broad statement, but I will prove it. The following quote is from the court case, Diet versus Turner, quote, when, therefore, Texas became one of the United States, capital U, capital S, she entered into an indissoluble relation. All the obligations of perpetual union and all the guarantees of Republican government in the union attached at once to the state, capital S. The act which consummated her admission into the union was something more than a compact it was the incorporation of a new member into the political body, and it was final. The union between Texas and other states was as complete, as perpetual, and as indissoluble as the union between the original states. There was no place for reconsideration or revocation except through revolution or through consent of the states." Unquote. The following quote is also from Diet versus Turner. Quote, Considered, therefore, as transactions under the Constitution, the ordinance of secession, adopted by the Convention and ratified by a majority of the citizens of Texas, and all the acts of her legislature intended to give effect to that ordinance were absolutely null. They were utterly without operation in law. The obligations of the state, capital S, as a member of the Union, capital U, and 
of every citizen of the state, capital S, as a citizen of the United States, capital U, capital S, remained perfect and unimpaired. It certainly follows that the state, capital S, did not cease to be a state, capital S, nor her citizens to be citizens of the Union, capital U. If this were otherwise, the state, capital S, must have become foreign and her citizens foreigners. The war must have ceased to be a war for the suppression of rebellion and must have become a war for conquest of subjugation, unquote. The southern states could not lawfully cede from the Union, and southern states is in caps there, could not lawfully cede from the Union without the other states, capital S, being in agreement. In the last sentence, you will notice the war was either a war of rebellion or the states, capital S, were made foreign and conquest and military rule took place during the Civil War. This is very important because of what took place next and what took place after the Civil War and March 9th, 1933. March 2nd, 1867, President Andrew Johnson declared the rebellion to be over and the Southern States, capital S, to be once again part of the Union, capital U, before the 13th and 14th Amendment were even passed. So the states were not foreign. They did not have to be readmitted. They picked up in Congress where they left off with the same state governments, capital S, they had before the rebellion. If the southern states, capital S, had ceded from the Union, capital U, without sanction by all the states, capital S, their legislative acts would have been null and void. In other words, if a state or the federal government, the state is in capture, violates their corporate charter, capital C, it makes any subsequent law null and void. The following information should upset you greatly, and at the same time it should amaze you that Americans are totally unaware of this information. How is it in the so-called freest country in the world, as a nation that prides itself on our history, could you have 200 plus million people ignorant of the truth and that care so little about the destruction of our country? The information I am sharing with you is purposely not taught in the public schools. Why? It will become clear to you that if the government taught this in the public schools, it would cause the rebirth of American patriotism. Americans would demand our former overthrown Republican form of government and that the laws of God Almighty be adhered to. We were promised in the Constitution a Republican form of government. And Benjamin Franklin, when asked, said, 
You have been given a Republican form of government if you can keep it. That's a paraphrase. By laziness and greed of the American people over the years, our lawful government was stolen, but not without our help. The Civil War was fought to free the slaves and reunite the Union, or so we have been told by selected history taught by and through the government. The slaves just changed masters, as I have said before in other research papers. And the white people enfranchised, incorporated, and sold themselves into slavery. Whites, along with blacks, were made legal fictions so they could be owned and taxed by the king. However, the only way this could be done is by destroying the Constitution, but they had to do it in a way that no one would recognize its destruction or care, thanks to the offered benefits. Now, the proof. December 8, 1863, President Lincoln declared by proclamation amnesty and reconstruction for the Southerners so that they could be readmitted into the Union. See footnote 7. This action, along with what Lincoln was doing with the money, is why Lincoln had to be killed. The South could not be allowed back into the Union without their enfranchisement. Compare the readmittance oath in President Lincoln's proclamation of 1863 to the following oath requirement required by Congress under the Reconstruction Act. See footnotes 3, 4, 5, and 6. The following quote is from the Reconstruction Act of March 23, 1867. It's a supplement to the Reconstruction Act of March 2, 1867. Wow. Quote, an act to provide for the more efficient government of the rebel states, capital S, passed March 2nd, 1867, shall cause a registration to be made of the male citizens of the United States, capital U, capital S, 21 years of age and upwards, resident in each county or parish in the state, capital S, or states, capital S, included in his district, which Registration shall include only those persons who are qualified to vote for delegates by the act aforesaid and who shall have taken and subscribed the following oath or affirmation. I, blank, do solemnly swear or affirm in the presence of Almighty God that I am a citizen of the state, capital S, of blank, that I have resided in said state, capital S, for blank months, next preceding this day. And now I reside in the county of blank, or the parish of blank, in said state, capital S, as the case may be, that I am 21 years old, that I have not been disenfranchised for participation in any rebellion or civil war against the United States, capital U, capital S, nor for felony committed against the laws of any state, capital S, or of the United States, capital U, capital S, 
that I have never been a member of any state, capital S, legislature, nor held any executive or judicial office in any state, capital S, and afterwards engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States, capital U, capital S, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, that I have never taken an oath as a member of Congress of the United States, capital U, capital S, or as an officer of the United States, capital U, capital S, or as a member of any state legislature, capital S, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, capital S, to support the Constitution of the United States, capital U, capital S, and afterwards engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States, capital U, capital S, or given aid and or comfort to the enemies thereof, that I will faithfully support the Constitution and obey the laws of the United States, capital U, capital S, and will to the best of my ability encourage others so to do, so help me God, which which oath or affirmation may be administered by any registering officer, unquote. You will note that in the above oath, Congress creates legal residence for anyone taking the oath, and that this is done by registering to vote and made a requirement in order to vote. The same legal disability still takes place today when you register to vote. Today, you still have voting districts in each county in America. You will notice also that the oath makes you declare that you were not disenfranchised by taking part in the Civil War, which means that before the Civil War, Americans were franchised citizens or incorporated I covered this in Part 1 by the states, capital S, adoption of the Constitution. Those that lived in the states, capital S, became legal residents, incorporated slash enfranchised, instead of sui juris freemen, which was granted to them by the Declaration of Independence and in North Carolina for North Carolinians, this was reaffirmed by the 1776 North Carolina Constitution, see British Colony Part 2, entitled Bend Over America. Also, you will see in the following oaths where the language came from. For the creation of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, this language was also used in the 14th Amendment oath you just read, wherein it declared that Elected officials, judges, legislators, and police, etc., cannot give aid and comfort to the enemy. The enemy is anyone unincorporated, because the king cannot legally tax you without using the force of admiralty. The enemy is also anyone that refuses to swear the oath to the de facto government for the above reasons. The following is the oath given to those that wanted to serve in the United States government, capital U, capital S, an act to prescribe an oath of office, July 2nd, 1862. Quote, be it enacted 
that hereafter every person elected or appointed to any office of honor or profit under the government of the United States, capital U, capital S, either in the civil, military, or naval departments of the public service, excepting the President of the United States, capital U, capital S, shall, before entering upon the duties of such office, and before being entitled to any of the salary or other emoluments thereof, take and subscribe the following oath of affirmation. I, blank, do solemnly swear or affirm that I have never voluntarily borne arms against the United States, capital U, capital S, since I have been a citizen thereof, that I have voluntarily given no aid, counsel, countenance, or encouragement to persons engaged in armed hostility thereto, that I have never sought nor accepted nor attempted to exercise the functions of any office whatever under any authority or pretended authority in hostility to the United States, capital U, capital S, that I have not yielded a voluntary support to any pretended government, authority, power, or constitution within the United States, capital U, capital S, hostile or inimical thereto. And I do further swear or affirm that, to the best of my knowledge and ability, I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States, capital U, capital S, against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely, without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I am about to enter, so help me God. Which said oath, so taken and signed, shall be preserved among the files of the court, house of Congress, or department to which the said office may appertain. And any person who shall falsely take the said oath shall be guilty of perjury, and on conviction, in addition to the penalties now prescribed for that offense, shall be deprived of his office and rendered incapable forever after of holding any place in office under the United States, capital U, capital S, unquote. When the war was over, President Andrew Johnson declared the states, capital S, readmitted to the Union and hostilities to be over. Furthermore, on April 2nd, 1866, President Andrew Johnson issued a proclamation that, quote, the insurrection which heretofore existed in the states of Georgia, South Carolina, Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, Alabama, Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Florida is at an end and is henceforth to be so regarded. Unquote. That was Presidential Proclamation Number 153 from the General Records of the United States, capital U, capital S, GSA, National Archives and Records Service. 
On August 20th, 1866, the president proclaimed that the insurrection of the state, capital S, of Texas had been completely ended, and his proclamation continued, quote, the insurrection which heretofore existed in the state, capital S, of Texas, is at an end, and is to be henceforth so regarded in that state, capital S, as in the other states, capital S, before named, in which the said insurrection was proclaimed to be at an end by the aforesaid proclamation of the second day of April, 1,866. And I do further proclaim that the said insurrection is at an end, and that peace, order, tranquility, and civil authority now exist in and throughout the whole of the United States of America, unquote, and the U in United there is lowercase. Again, the power behind the United States, capital U, capital S, government, would not stand for this. No, the power behind the United States government wouldn't stand for that. So Congress passed the Reconstruction Acts. They should have called them the Totalitarian Acts, the Military Conquest Acts. Reconstruction Act. That's a rather Orwellian term, a hundred years before Orwell. See footnotes 3, 4, 5, and 6. President Johnson vetoed the Reconstruction Acts because they were unconstitutional. Boy, we never hear that. Wait, that's one thing reading through this. Uh, you find out that the President Andrew Johnson... He wasn't such a bad guy. He gets a bad rap in history now. You're going to find out that's because he was a decent guy, uh, from at least according to uh, what uh, James Montgomery has documented. It, it would make sense, too, that the history we're spoon-fed now would uh, smear someone if they were a decent man, like Andrew Johnson. And uh, you, you get the feeling, reading this, that Abraham Lincoln picked a pretty decent VP, before he was assassinated. Okay, President Johnson vetoed the Reconstruction Act because they were unconstitutional. Below are some excerpts from his veto message. Quote, It is plain that the authority here given to the military officer amounts to absolute despotism. But to make it still more unendurable, the bill provides that it may be delegated to as many subordinates as he chooses to appoint, for it declares that he shall punish or cause to be punished. Such a power has not been wielded by any monarch in England for more than 500 years. In all that time, no people who speak the English language have borne such servitude. It reduces the whole population of the ten states, capital S, all persons, of every color, sex, and condition, and every stranger within their limits to the most abject and degrading slavery. No master ever had a control so absolute over the slaves as this bill gives to the military officers over both white and colored persons. I come now to a question which is, if possible, still more important. 
Have we the power to establish and carry into execution a measure like this? I answer, certainly not. If we derive our authority from the Constitution, and if we are bound by the same limitations which it imposes. The Constitution also forbids the arrest of the citizen without judicial warrant founded on probable cause. This bill authorizes an arrest without warrant at pleasure of a military commander. The Constitution declares that no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on presentment of a grand jury. This bill holds over person not a soldier answerable for all crimes and all charges without any presentment. The Constitution declares that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. This bill sets aside all process of law and makes the citizen answerable in his person and property to the will of one man, and as to his life, to the will of two. Finally, the Constitution declares that the privilege of writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when, in case of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. Whereas this bill declares martial law, which of itself suspends this great writ in time of peace, and authorizes the military to make the arrest and give to the person only one privilege, and that is trial without unnecessary delay. He has no hope of release from custody, except the hope, such as it is, of release by acquittal before a military commission. The United States are bound to guarantee to each state, capital S, a republican form of government. Can it be pretended that this obligation is not palpably broken if we carry out a measure like this, which wipes away every vestige of republican government in ten states, capital S, and puts the life, property, and honor of all people in each of them under domination of a single person clothed with unlimited authority? Here is a bill of attainder against nine million people at once. It is based upon an accusation so vague as to be scarcely intelligible and found to be true upon no credible evidence. Not one of the nine million was heard in his own defense. The representatives of the doomed parties were excluded from all participation in the trial. The conviction is to be followed by the most ignominious punishment ever inflicted on large masses of men. It disenfranchises them by hundreds of thousands and degrades them all, even those who are admitted to be guiltless, from the rank of free men to the condition of slaves." Unquote. That's the veto message of President Andrew Johnson when he vetoed the Reconstruction Acts, March 2nd, 1867, C footnote 8. President Johnson did not realize that the king ruled and that in 1845 Congress had already declared admiralty law to have come on land. Nor did he realize the relevance of the insular cases. I cover these in my other essay, A Country Defeated in Victory, Part 1, 
and in footnote 11 thereof. Once the judiciary decided to look the other way, the de jure constitution's days were numbered. Quote, as a result of these decisions, enforcement of the Reconstruction Act against the Southern States, capital S, helpless to resist military rule without aid of the judiciary, went forward unhampered. Puppet governments were founded in these various states, capital S, under military auspices. Through these means, the adoption of new state, lowercase s, constitutions, conforming to the requirements of Congress was accomplished. Likewise, one by one, these puppet state, lowercase s, governments ratified the 14th Amendment which their more independent predecessors had rejected. Finally, in July 1868, the ratifications of this amendment by the puppet governments of seven of the ten southern states, capital S, including Louisiana, gave more than the required ratification by three-fourths of the states, capital S, and resulted in a joint resolution adopted by Congress and a proclamation by the Secretary of State, both declaring the amendment ratified and in force, unquote. This from the Tulane Law Review, The Dubious Origin of the 14th Amendment, page 36. Now James Montgomery's words. To regress just a moment, after the Civil War, after the states, capital S, rejoined the Union, capital U, the representatives of the South took their seats in Congress, just as before. Later, the 13th Amendment was passed in Congress by the Northern States and the Southern States. By the 1787 Constitution, they were all considered equal contracting partners of the Union. The powers controlling the government had to replace their Republican form of government that had existed in Southern States, capital S, since the adoption of the 1787 Constitution. The following quote is from Diet versus Turner. Quote, despite the fact that the Southern States had been functioning peacefully for two years and had been counted to secure ratification of the 13th Amendment, Congress passed the Reconstruction Act which provided for the military occupation of 10 of the 11 southern states, capital S. It excluded Tennessee from military occupation, and one must suspect it was because Tennessee had ratified the 14th Amendment on July 7, 1866. The act further disenfranchised practically all white voters and provided that no senator or congressman from the occupied states, capital S, could be seated in Congress until a new constitution was adopted by each state, capital S, which would be approved by Congress. The act further provided that each of the ten states, capital S, was required to ratify the proposed 14th Amendment, and the 14th Amendment must become a part of the Constitution of the United States, capital U, capital S, before the military occupancy would cease and the states be allowed to have seats in Congress, 
unquote. The way they chose to do it was pass the 14th Amendment. However, the northern states that put the amendment up in Congress figured the southern states would ratify. Wrong. The amendment fell short of passing the House and the Senate. The action next taken by the northern states will go down in history as the most unlawful act ever taken by any government in the world. Since the amendment would not pass lawfully, the northern states decided to rip the 1787 Constitution up and take over the government. How did they do this? They told the southern states that refused to vote for the amendment. They no longer were members of Congress, denying lawful states' suffrage in the Union. In order to get the amendment through Congress, the northern senators also removed a seated senator from New Jersey to give them two-thirds in the Senate and counted 30 abstention votes in the House as yes votes to pass the 14th Amendment in the House. See footnote 12. Observing how a renegade group of men from the northern states, my note in quotes, actual text in brackets, Congress had taken the Constitution into its own hands. Yeah, this is like a rump Congress, isn't it? and was proceeding in willful disregard of the Constitution on the 15th of January, 1868. Ohio and then New Jersey voted to withdraw their prior ratifications and to reject the 14th Amendment bill. The following is an excerpt from Joint Resolution Number 1 of the State of New Jersey of March 24, 1868, when they rescinded their prior ratification and rejected, quote, it being necessary by the Constitution that every amendment to the same should be proposed by two-thirds of both houses of Congress, the authors of said proposition, for the purpose of securing the assent of the requisite majority, determined to and did exclude from said two houses 80 representatives from 11 states of the Union upon the pretense that there were no such states in the Union, but finding that two-thirds of the remainder of said houses could not be brought to assent to the said proposition, they deliberately formed and carried out the design of mutilating the integrity of the United States Senate, and without any pretext or justification other than the possession of power without the right and in palpable violation of the Constitution ejected a member of their own body representing this state and thus practically denied to New Jersey its equal suffrage in the Senate and thereby nominally secured the vote of two-thirds of the said houses, unquote. Okay, pause here. You see what's happening. What, has, what happened with the 14th Amendment bill? Uh, okay, after this, the so-called Civil War, uh, Andrew Johnson, uh, just like Abe Lincoln wanted, they let the southern states and their representatives back in amicably, picked up where they left off before the Civil War, and, and it was status quo. 
it's so much status quo that the 13th Amendment, you know, not the original, original 13th Amendment that we talked about that had to do with the War of 1812, but the 13th Amendment that we know of today, uh, the, the, the Southern Senators voted and, and passed it. So they were part of the country again for two years, part of the representatives of the states for two years after the Civil War. But then the Northern Senators, out of a lust for power and a, a vengeance, and no doubt doing the will, doing the bidding of elite bankers elsewhere, they wanted the passage of the 14th Amendment. And the southern states said, oh, no, you don't. This is going to change citizenship. This is going to make us slaves, everybody slaves again. And it's, and it's going to make us slaves uh, and that we can't uh, uh, question the debt. So the southern senators saw through it. And so the northern senators, most of them said, that we're, we're, not going, to, we're going to throw you back out. We're going to get rid of you. You're not part of us. You, you just waged war on us. And wait a minute. Weren't we back, uh, back uh, under your umbrella again? Weren't we all a country again for two years? And the northern senators denied that. They kicked out the southern senators. And that was so egregious and unlawful because, after all, the Constitution, for, of course, it was a fraud, but the, one of the privileges it gave us, if you will, is uh, it, it made, it's called for the states to be given a Republican form of government. But you can't have a Republican form of government for every state if you're kicking the Southern senators out. And Ohio, the Ohio senator, and particularly the New Jersey senator from the North said, whoa, wait a minute, guys. We, yeah, we're from the North. But what you're doing here is hideously unlawful. These states were let back in. They're on equal footing with us again, these senators. And those states are to be given a Republican form of government. You can't just throw them, throw away their representatives, deny them their representation. And so New Jersey, what's going to happen with the uh, New Jersey senator is because he rescinded his, his uh, passage, his, his yes vote on the 14th Amendment, the other northern senators throw the New Jersey guy out now. You see, you see what, what happened with the so-called Reconstruction Act. They were actually the, it was kind of like the Patriot Act where it's actually the, the desecration of whatever rights left, whatever, whatever privileges we had left, that's the Patriot Act, what it should have been called. Well, this so-called Reconstruction Act was the totalitarian act, the Takeover Act, the, the hostile military Takeover Act would be a, a more appropriate uh, phrase for it. Anyway, uh, back to the essay, and this is continuing the quote uh, regarding what happened to the senator from New Jersey. Quote, the object of dismembering the highest representative assembly in the nation and humiliating a state of the union, capital S, faithful at all times to all of its obligations and the object of said amendment were one, to place new and unheard of powers in the hands of a faction that it might absorb to itself all executive, judicial, and legislative power necessary to secure itself immunity for the unconstitutional acts it had already committed and those it has since inflicted on a too patient people. Bet you never heard any of this stuff before, right? I, I'm, I'm guessing, and I'm guessing right. Am I not? Yeah, I know. I know you have never heard of this before because I had never heard of this before until you actually read it. You've got to do the research yourself. You're not going to be told this on the Discovery Channel, on the Hitler Channel. Excuse me, I mean History Channel. You know what, 
There's always Hitler on there. You're not going to be told this in the government schools. Obviously, it should be obvious. Why hasn't it already been obvious to you? Continuing. The subsequent usurpation of these once national assemblies in passing pretended laws for the establishment in ten states, capital S, of martial law, which is nothing but the will of the military commander, and therefore inconsistent with the very nature of all law, for the purpose reducing to slavery men of their own race to those states, capital S, or compelling them, contrary to their own convictions, to exercise the elective franchise in obedience to dictation of a fraction in those assemblies. The attempt to commit to one man arbitrary and controlled power, which they have found necessary to exercise to force the people of those states, capital S, into compliance with their will. The authority given to the Secretary of War, to use the name of the President, to countermand its President's order, and see this, Andrew Johnson was, uh, they were doing an end around on Andrew Johnson. Kind of like how JFK didn't know the full weight of what was going on. Neither did Abe, neither did uh, Andrew Johnson. And to cert there were higher powers in the background who were really the powers, obviously, and to certify military orders. And they had the rump northern senators in their back pocket, these bankers. To be by the direction of the president when they are notoriously known to be contrary to the president's direction. There it is. Thus, keeping up the forms of the Constitution to which the people are accustomed, but practically deposing the president from his office of commander-in-chief. Now you know why Andrew Johnson was uh, almost impeached. And you know why now. Are you getting it? You should. It was because he actually was going against the will of the bankers. And suppressing one of the great departments of the government, that of the executive. The attempt to withdraw from the Supreme Judicial Tribunal of the nation the jurisdiction to examine and decide upon the conformity of their pretended laws to the Constitution, which was the chief function of that august tribunal, as organized by the Fathers of the Republic, all are but amplified explanations of the power they hope to acquire by the adoption of the said amendment." Unquote. Quote, to conceal from the people the immense alteration of the fundamental law they intended to accomplish by the said amendment, they gilded the same with propositions of justice. It imposes new prohibitions upon the power of the state, capital S, to pass laws and interdicts the execution of such part of the common law as the national judiciary may esteem inconsistent with the vague provisions of the said amendment, made vague for the purpose of facilitating encroachment upon the lives, liberties, and properties of the people. It enlarges the judicial power of the United States so as to bring every law passed by the state, capital S, and every principle of the common law relating to life, liberty, or property within the jurisdiction of the federal tribunals, and charges those tribunals with duties 
to the due performance of which they, from their nature and organization, and their distance from the people, are unequal. It makes a new apportionment of representatives in the national courts for no other reason than thereby to secure to a faction a sufficient number of votes of a servile and ignorant race to outweigh the intelligent voices of their own. This legislature, feeling conscious of the support of the largest majority of the people that has ever been given expression to the public will, declare that the said proposed amendment being designed to confer or to compel the states to confer, capital S, the sovereign right of elective franchise upon a race which has never given the slightest evidence at any time or in any quarter of the globe of its capacity of self-government and erect an impracticable standard of suffrage which will render the right valueless to any portion of the people was intended to overthrow the system of self-government under which the people of the United States, capital U, capital S, have for 80 years enjoyed their liberties and is unfit from its origin, its object, and its matter to be incorporated with the fundamental law of a free people, unquote. That whole quote was uh, from Pinckney G. McElwee, from the South Carolina Law Quarterly. And Montgomery writes, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. Oh, that was the title of, of uh, McElwee's essay uh, in that quarterly. The 14th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States and the threat that it poses to our democratic government. That was written in 1959, okay. Does he mean 1859? No, it wouldn't be that. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, moving on. Did the political outrage of all history stop there? No. In order to ratify the amendment of the states, capital S, Congress declared war on the southern states, capital S, by passing the Reconstruction Acts, declaring the southern states, capital S, had unlawful state governments, capital S. They placed the states, capital S, under martial law, creating military districts which still exist today. Is not the 14th Amendment still in existence today? Nothing has changed, folks. They replaced the lawful state governments, capital S, with puppet governments. So the 14th Amendment would be ratified by the required three-fourths of the states, capital S, and would not readmit any state, capital S, until ratification of the amendment was complete. The illusion is, since you vote for your officials, then we can't be under military occupation. The privilege to vote would end today if your state, capital S, tried to remove the 14th Amendment. Back to President Johnson's veto. The unlawful Congress then overrode his veto. Now, picture this. 
you have a lawful president who vetoed the Unconstitutional Reconstruction Acts passed by a de facto Congress, then the unlawful Congress overrides his veto since they have a Republican majority in the Congress after denying the representation to the Democratic Southern states. This Congress, under the 1787 Constitution, had no lawful authority to conduct business under the 1787 Charter, much less destroy the office of the president. What do you call this? It was a political takeover, folks. A coup d'etat. The 14th Amendment was proposed by Congress to the states for adoption through the enactment by Congress of Public Resolution No. 48, adopted by the Senate on June 8, 1866, and by the House of Representatives on June 13, 1866. That Congress deliberately submitted this amendment proposal to the then existing legislatures of the several states, capital S, is shown by the initial paragraph of the resolution. And those last couple of sentences were from the Tulane Law Review, uh, The Dubious Origin of the 14th Amendment. Ooh, and here are the facts. Look at this. All right, uh, there are 17, 17 of these, let's go through them real quick. This must be from that Tulane, that Tulane publication. Here we go, number one, Texas rejected the 14th Amendment on October 27, 1866. Georgia rejected the 14th Amendment on November 9, 1866. Florida rejected the 14th Amendment on December 6, 1866. Alabama rejected the 14th Amendment on December 7, 1866. North Carolina rejected the 14th Amendment on December 14, 1866. Arkansas rejected the 14th Amendment on December 17, 1866. South Carolina rejected the 14th Amendment on December 20, 1866. Kentucky rejected the 14th Amendment on January 8, 1867. Virginia rejected the 14th Amendment on January 9, 1867. Louisiana rejected the 14th Amendment on February 9, 1867. Delaware rejected the 14th Amendment on February 7, 1867. Maryland rejected the 14th Amendment on March 23, 1867. Mississippi rejected the 14th Amendment on January 31, 1867. Ohio rejected the 14th Amendment. Those were one of the two that backed out on January 15, 1868. And finally, what made the northern senators in the pay of the bankers flip their wigs was New Jersey rescinded and rejected the 14th Amendment on March 24, 1868. And then, two more. California rejected the 14th Amendment. I didn't know that. Wow. On March 3rd, 1868, Oregon rejected the 14th Amendment. On October 6th, 1868, did the military occupation 
ever come to an end? No. Did the military presence leave the streets? Yes. Technically, do you have to have a military presence visible in the streets for military occupation and martial law to exist? Uh, no, you don't. Can the military slash commander-in-chief slash Congress transfer this power to the civil authorities? Yes. Read the following cases and Lincoln's General Order 100 in footnote number 9. All right, folks, we're going to take a break here for a couple of minutes. And we will see you on the other side of this song, which has some pretty appropriate lyrics, I think. All right, over and out. Uh, see, you in a, see you in a couple minutes. All right, we're back continuing with James Montgomery's Will the Real Government Please Stand Up? Uh, we were left off talking about the criminal origins of the 14th Amendment and the totalitarian takeover that was the Reconstruction Act. Uh, this Part two of this uh, episode is coming back. It starts with a footnote, not a footnote, a quote from uh, the court case McLeod versus U.S. from 1913. Quote, but there is another description of government, also called by publicists a government de facto, but which might perhaps be more aptly denominated a government of paramount force. Its distinguishing characteristics are, one, that its existence is maintained by active military power within the territories and against the rightful authority of an established and lawful government, and two, that while it exists, it must necessarily be obeyed in civil matters by private citizens who by acts of obedience rendered in submission to such force, do not become responsible as wrongdoers for those acts, though not warranted by the laws of the rightful government. Actual governments of this sort are established over districts differing greatly in extent and conditions. They are usually administered directly by military authority, but they may be administered also by civil authority, supported more or less directly by military force." Unquote. This is followed by another quote from McLeod versus U.S. 1913. Quote, While it is held to be the right of a conqueror to levy contributions upon the enemy in their seaports, towns, or provinces, which may be in his military possession by conquest, and to apply the proceeds to defray the expenses of the war. This right is to be exercised within such limitations that it may not savor of confiscation. As the result of military occupation, the taxes and duties payable by the inhabitants to the former government become payable to the military occupant unless he sees fit to substitute for them other rates or modes of contributions to the expenses of the government. The monies so collected are to be used for the purpose of paying the expenses of government under the military occupation, such as the salaries of the judges and the police force, 
and for the payment of the expenses of the army, unquote. To also prove that military occupation still exists, ask yourself this. Is the 14th Amendment, which was ratified under duress, military occupation, and written and passed by a de facto Congress still in existence? Yes. If a state would today remove the 14th Amendment and the statutory laws this amendment created from their state laws, capital S, do you think the federal government would send in the military again? Of course it would. So, did the military occupation end? I hope by now you know the answer to that. Have you never wondered why the government sends your tax dollars all over the world via the IMF and the World Bank, etc., etc., with Americans paying the bill without ever putting this up for a vote? Read the following quote. Quote, in New Orleans versus New York Mail, SS Company 20, Wall 387-393-22LED-354, it was said, with respect to the powers of the military government over the city of New Orleans after its conquest, that it had the same power and rights in territory held by conquest as if the territory had belonged to a foreign country and had been subjugated in a foreign war. In such cases, the conquering power has the right to displace the pre-existing authority and to assume, to such extent as it may deem proper, the exercise by itself of all the powers and functions of government. It may appoint all the necessary officers and clothe them with designated powers, larger or smaller, according to its pleasure. It may prescribe the revenues to be paid and apply them to its own use or otherwise. It may do anything necessary to strengthen itself and weaken the enemy. There is no limit to the powers that may be exerted in such cases save those which are found in the laws and usages of war, unquote, that from Dooley versus U.S. 1901. To drive home the relevance of the first two parts of British colony and what I just said above about taxes, read and understand the below quotes from the Declaration of Rights, September 5th, 1774. Maybe it will sink in. We are taxed by Britain, and we have not only asked for it, but demanded the benefits supplied by the king, past and present. Go figure. Quote, resolved, for, that the foundation of English liberty and of all free government is a right in the people to participate in their legislative council, and people is in lower case there. And as the English colonists are not represented, and from their local and other circumstances cannot properly be represented in the British Parliament, 
They are entitled to a free and exclusive power of legislation in their several provincial legislatures where their rights of representation can alone be preserved. In all cases of taxation and internal polity, subject only to the negative of their sovereign, in such manner as has been heretofore used and accustomed, but from the necessity of the case and a regard to the mutual interest of both countries, we cheerfully consent to the operation of such acts of the British Parliament as are bona fide, restrained to the regulation of our external commerce for the purpose of securing the commercial advantages of the whole empire to the mother country and the commercial benefits of its respective members, excluding every area of taxation, internal or external, for raising a revenue on the subject in America without their consent, unquote. This was from the Declaration of Rights, from September 5th, 1774, parentheses. The forefathers wanted the commercial benefits without paying the taxes that go hand in hand. It does not work that way, patriots, in parentheses. Continued from the Declaration of Rights, September 5th, 1774, quote, resolved, seven, that these, His Majesty's colonies, are likewise entitled to all the immunities and privileges granted and confirmed to them by royal charters or secured by their several codes of provincial laws, unquote. As further proof, are not all states, capital S, divided into military districts? At first glance, you may not think so. However, look at your district courts in your state, capital S. They are the enforcement arm of the Admiralty Law slash King's Law and legislation passed on a daily basis. As I said before, the voting districts are also left over from the Reconstruction Act. In every courtroom, a military flag is flown, a war flag, that's the U.S. flag with the gold fringe, not the Title IV flag of peace. Are you not required to obtain a license from the de facto government for every aspect of commerce and the use of their military script slash fiat money? Americans are taxed and controlled in the following ways, just to name a few. One, social security number, which is the license to work. Two, driver's license, which is the permission to conduct commerce and travel on the military roads. Number three, occupational license, which is the permission to perform a God-given right. Number four, State and Local Privilege License, which is the license to work in the state, capital S, county or city. Five, Marriage License, which is the permission for a right granted already by God Almighty. Number six, Hunting and Fishing License, which is the government 
taxing the property of God Almighty. Every license or permit is a use tax and is financial slavery. You are controlled, brickmakers, in every aspect of your life. All licenses came about after the 14th Amendment and the military occupation which we are now under. The reason all this has taken place in America is to colonize the world for Britain. Same old, same old, huh? The United States has been the enforcement arm slash cannon fodder for Britain since the Civil War. Have you ever noticed that? The following is from the Tulane Law Review, The Dubious Origin of the 14th Amendment. Quote, the decisions wherein grounds were found for avoiding a ruling on the constitutionality of the Reconstruction Act leave the impression that our highest tribunal failed in these cases to measure up to the standard of the judiciary in a constitutional democracy. If the Reconstruction Act was unconstitutional, the people oppressed by it were entitled to protection by the judiciary against such unconstitutional oppression, unquote. The following again is from the Tulane Law Review's The Dubious Origin of the 14th Amendment, quote, The adversary or the skeptic might assert that, after a lapse of more than 80 years, it is too late to question the constitutionality or validity of the coerced ratifications of the 14th Amendment, even on substantial and serious grounds. The ready answer is that there is no statute of limitations that will cure a gross violation of the amendment procedure laid down by Article 5 of the Constitution, unquote. If you want to read more about the military occupation and the War Powers Act, read footnote 11. This issue concerning the Constitution has to be understood by the patriots before you can help others to see the illusion. We patriots need to be able to tell others how we arrived in this present condition. But this will never happen as long as we defend a dead treaty, the Constitution, and expect a lawful remedy from a de facto government. Is it any wonder why Americans look at us like we're nuts? We defy a de facto government and take its benefits. We curse its judges and praise a de facto constitution that denies the judge's ability to give remedy to the enemy. We praise the legal document that gave Congress the power to declare us as enemies and curse the Congress for their action. Wake up, patriots. How do you expect Americans to listen to the truth when we are so easily made to look like fools by the government propaganda machine and we make it easy for them. 
We tell the American people the sky is falling, but never give them a remedy, other than keeping the same damn document that enslaved us. We do not tell the American people that there was life before the Civil War occupation and the 14th Amendment unlawful constitution. So fear of the unknown will keep them from wanting to learn. The only remedy I see, except for God's almighty judgment, is to expose the fraud. See footnote 13. Until you accept the truth about the Constitution, you will not be able to understand the information in my British colonies, part one and two. I will end this research paper in this way. Someone asked me, are you not afraid to be killed by the government? I told them what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Daniel 3, verses 17 and 18. The footnotes, folks. I, uh, I've been through this one time before, and I've just I've highlighted really things that really stood out for me. I'll tell you what, I'll just go through these footnotes and just read the little bits that I've highlighted just to give you a flavor of, of the salient nature, the crucial nature of these footnotes. Uh, okay, let's see. Footnote one, this is from the North Carolina legislature. Uh... This is from a North Carolina legislature document in 1866, uh, talking about the federal constitution in the article which concerns amendments. It is expressly provided that no state without its consent shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. The contemplated amendment was not proposed to the states by a Congress thus constituted. Talking about how the, the unlawful coerced ratification of the 14th Amendment. Had they been allowed to give their votes, the proposition, 14th Amendment, would have doubtless have failed to command the required two-thirds majority. So yeah, that was a coup d'etat that happened to pass when the 14th Amendment was unlawfully ratified. Okay, uh, next one, another footnote, little part that I uh, highlighted. Some of these I remember, some of them I don't. Uh, in order to have 27 states ratify the 14th Amendment, it was necessary to count those states which had first rejected and then under the duress of military occupation had ratified, and then also to count those states which initially ratified but subsequently rejected the proposal. That was from Diet versus Turner. This also is from Diet versus Turner. To leave such dishonest counting to a fractional part of Congress is dangerous in the extreme. And we've got the extreme, and we've got the danger now. It's called the 14th Amendment that they forced on us all. This is from footnote number two from the Tulane Law Review, The Dubious Origin of the 14th Amendment. The events of 1867 and 1888 when a rump Congress arrogated to itself the power to force ratification of a rejected amendment 
coercing ratifications by several of the rejecting states. Skipping down, however, the submission was by a rump Congress. Skipping down, each house had excluded all persons appearing with credentials as senators or representatives from the ten southern states of Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, and Texas. This exclusion constituted a gross violation of the essence of two other constitutional provisions, both intended to protect the rights of the states, capital S, to representation in Congress. Had these ten southern states not been summarily denied their constitutional rights of representation in Congress, through the ruthless use of the power of each house to pass on the election and qualifications of its members, this amendment proposal would doubtless have died a borning. It obviously would have been impossible to secure a two-thirds vote for the submission of the proposed 14th Amendment, particularly in the Senate, if the excluded members had been permitted to enter and to vote. Of course, that was one of the motives and reasons for this policy of ruthless exclusion. Skipping down, this rump Congress, skipping down, this rump Congress, skipping down, the ten southern states whose senators and representatives were all excluded from the deliberations of the rump Congress, skipping down, this created a situation which made impossible the ratification of the amendment, 14th Amendment, unless some of these rejections were reversed. With 37 states, capital S, in all, 10 rejections were sufficient to prevent the adoption of the amendment proposal. The 13 rejections by the 10 southern states, capital S, and three border states, capital S, were more than sufficient to block ratification even if all other states, capital S, finally ratified. Skipping down. The subsequent purported ratification of this amendment in Louisiana was by a legislature of a puppet government created by the radical majority of Congress to do the bidding of its master and compelled to ratify this 14th Amendment by the federal statute which had brought this puppet government into existence for this specific purpose. Skipping down, it is most interesting to read the proceedings of the Louisiana House of Representatives on February 6, 1867, whereby that body adopted the joint resolution ordaining the refusal of Louisiana to ratify the proposed 14th Amendment, the joint resolution which became Act 4, of 1867. This journal shows by the roll call that 100 members voted out of a total House membership of 110 and that the unanimous vote was 100 against ratification and not in favor of it. This was the last opportunity for a free and uncoerced expression of views on this amendment proposal by duly elected representatives of the people of Louisiana. Skipping. The act dealt with these southern states, capital S, referred to as rebel states, capital S, in its various provisions. 
It opened with a recital that no legal state government, capital S, existed in these states, capital S. It placed these states, capital S, under military rule. Louisiana and Texas were grouped as the such and such district. All civilian authorities were placed under the dominant authority of the military government. They don't tell us this in school, do they? The most extreme and amazing feature of the act was the requirement that each excluded state, capital S, must ratify the 14th Amendment in order to again enjoy the status and rights of a state, capital S, including representation in Congress. Skipping, Senator Doolittle of Wisconsin, a northerner and a conservative Republican, during the floor debate on the bill, he said, the people of the South have rejected the constitutional amendment, and therefore we will march upon them and force them to adopt it at the point of a bayonet and establish military power over them until they do adopt it. Holy mackerel. Skipping. President Johnson vetoed the Reconstruction Act in an able message, stressing its harsh injustices and its many aspects of obvious unconstitutionality. He justifiably denounced it as a bill of attainder against nine million people at once. Skipping, notwithstanding this able message, the act was promptly passed over his veto by the required two-thirds majority in each house. Military rule took over in the 10 southern states, capital S, to initiate the process of conditioning a subjugated people to an ultimate acceptance of the 14th Amendment. Skipping. Whatever justification for other portions of the Reconstruction Act may or may not be found in this constitutional provision, there could clearly be no sort of a relationship between a guarantee to a state of a Republican form of government, quote-unquote, and an abrogation of the basic and constitutional right of a state, capital S, in its legislative discretion to make its own choice between ratification or rejection of a constitutional amendment proposal submitted to the state legislatures, lowercase s, by the Congress of the United States, capital U, capital S, to deny to a state, capital S, the exercise of this free choice between ratification and rejection, and to put the harshest sort of coercive pressure upon a state, capital S, to compel ratification was clearly a gross infraction, not an effectuation of the constitutional guarantee of, quote, a Republican form of government, unquote. Skipping. Madison said in the Federalist Paper number 43, the authority extends no further than to a guarantee of a Republican form of government, dot, dot, dot. The only restriction imposed on them is that they shall not exchange Republican for anti-Republican constitution. <laughs> the 14th Amendment, folks, violates the Federalist Papers. Wow. Skipping. 
The Senate Journal for the same date shows the reading of instructions from General Grant to the commanding officer of the 5th Military District emphasizing the supremacy of the power of the military over the provisional civil government. It was under these auspices that the coerced ratifications of the 14th Amendment in Louisiana was accomplished. Skipping. Also worth note in this connection is the holding in 1895 that the levying of an income tax by the federal government without apportioning the tax among the states, capital S, as a direct tax, violated the taxing power provisions of the Constitution of the United States. Although 30 years prior to this judicial vindication of what the majority of the court deemed to be fundamental and true constitutional provisions, the federal government had levied and collected income taxes for several years on a large scale and had financed a major war of vital consequences to a very considerable extent out of revenues so obtained, unquote. So there was highlights from footnote two, the Tulane Law Review of the Dubious Origins of the 14th Amendment. This is footnote three, a few highlights from this one. This is, this is the Reconstruction Act of March 2nd, 1867. Just a few, minor, a few small highlights that I've uh, made in this. Whereas no legal state, capital S, governance or adequate protection for life or property now exists in the rebel states, capital S, of Virginia, Louisiana, Florida, Texas, and Arkansas. Listen to this. It's a smear job. It's an Orwellian smear job, this Greek Reconstruction Act. No legal state governments and no adequate protection of life in the South exists now, guys, so we got to go get after that South. Two years, over two years after the end of the Civil War, they're claiming this. And, and then it says uh, that peace and good order needs to, should be enforced in those states until loyal and Republican state governments can be legally established. They mean puppet government, because once you invade them and conquer those states and set up those, those deny them their representation, then you've killed any Republican form of government for those states. <clears throat> that the 1787 Charter called the Constitution, corporate charter, that uh, supposedly guaranteed. Okay, continuing with the Reconstruction Act. Be it enacted that said rebel states, listen to that, just the, the carefully chosen pejorative language, the rebel states. And this is, these are legal documents now. Boy, Orwell was right. I mean, you play games with language, that's how you play games with people's heads. Most people don't question the connotations in the emotions, in the emotions and the connotations in the words they hear. Most people are, are deceived by that, unfortunately. In other words, most people are morons. And uh, language games are how you manipulate, are one big way how you manipulate people. The said rebel states shall be divided into military districts and made subject to the military authority of the United States, capital U, capital S. Skipping a lot here. Still with the Reconstruction Act of 1867, though. 
And when said state, capital S, by a vote of its legislature elected under said constitution, shall have adopted the amendment to the Constitution of the United States. This is interesting. The original Constitution there is lowercase. And when they write Constitution of the United States, then it's uppercase C. So when, this, when their puppet government uh, passes or ratifies the coerced 14th Amendment, then Article 14 and when said article shall become a part of the Constitution of the United States, said state, capital S, shall be declared entitled to representation in Congress. You've killed it already. You took away their, you've conquered them. You killed their representation in Congress. You're calling their puppet government that you put in representation in Congress. And senators and re representatives shall be admitted therefrom on their taking the oaths prescribed by law. This was a, why are they teaching this in school? This was a total hit job. This was a, this was an invasion. After the war was concluded, two years after, this was a total coup d'etat. Oh, man. Again, rebel states, rebel states. This is all about conquest, folks. This is conquest. This is why uh, Matt Montgomery talked to you about the, the international laws of conquest. That's what happened. Okay, and look at this. Uh, and then this is still, okay, this is footnote five now. This is the Supplementary Reconstruction Act. Later on in 1867, they require people, this is the only part I highlighted, is they require people to take this oath and thereby make themselves become legal fictions. This, and this is what we're all now. This is what you and I are now. We're legal fictions. This is how they enslave us. They get our volunteering, our, our own voluntary servitude. Ready? In order to... Uh, these southern states, where to, if the people want it back in, <laughs> after they coerce their fortune amendment, they have to say, I, blank, do solemnly swear in the presence of Almighty God that I am a citizen of the state, capital S, in other words, I am a slave of the state, of blank, that I have resided in said state, capital S. You notice it's capital state, uh, S state, because it's the corporate state now, which is under the, the big uh, corporate uh, the, the national state, the Washington, D.C., the corporate charter. Then you have the sub-charter, the sub-corporation, the, the 50 states, eventual 50. And that's, where you, that's why the S is capitalized there. Uh, it, it, prior, to the 14th Amend, prior to the 14th Amendment, the state would have been lowercase s. Said state for blank months, next preceding day, and now reside in the county of blank. The county that's all of that are sub, sub, sub corporations and so on. Or the parish of blank in said state, capital S, as the case may be, that I am 21 years old, that I have not been disenfranchised for the participation, blah, blah, blah. They require the Southerners to make themselves legal fictions uh, and the whites too. So they enslaved the whites and the black slaves just changed masters. Uh, footnote six. Another Supplementary Reconstruction Act later on in 1867. So those guys really just had a blast with this Reconstruction Act. That rump, 
totalitarian Congress in 1867, uh, no doubt in the back pockets of the bankers. David Astle's The Babylonian Woe would confirm that. <clears throat> okay, just one paragraph I've highlighted here. Check this out. This is conquest, be it enacted, that it is hereby declared to have been the true intent and meaning of the act of the second day of March 1867 entitled an act to provide for the more efficient government of the rebel states and of the act supplementary thereto passed on the 23rd day of March 1867 so now this is the third addendum the second addendum the third overall of the reconstruction act that the government then existing in the rebel states capital S of Virginia North Carolina South Carolina Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, Florida, Texas, and Arkansas were not legal state governments, capital S, and that thereafter said governments, if continued, were to be continued subject to all respects to the military commanders of the respective districts and to the paramount authority of Congress, and that Northern Rump Congress, again, was in the back pocket of the bankers. This was a totalitarian takeover, is what happened with the so-called Reconstruction Act. Okay, footnote 7. Uh, not too much more here. Footnote 7. This is a proclamation of amnesty and reconstruction by the President of the United States of America. So this, this was, let's see, was this Okay, this is what Abraham Lincoln wrote. Here's how Lincoln, see the South's real enemy was not Abe Lincoln, and it wasn't Andrew Johnson. It wasn't any executive, but rather it was the rump northern congressmen who were in the pay of the big bankers, no doubt. Uh, so here's what Abe Lincoln wanted. Here's how Lincoln wanted the South to be brought back into the Union. This is, and the irony is, Southerners, angry Southerners are blaming Lincoln to this day for what the rump, crooked congressmen of the North did. Lincoln was killed over this because, in part, this is the reason, he didn't want to do this to the South. Here we go. The president was thereby authorized at any time thereafter by proclamation to extend to persons who may have participated in the existing rebellion in any state, capital S, or part thereof, pardon and amnesty. That's what Lincoln wanted. Skipping. Whereas it is now desired by some persons heretofore engaged in said rebellion to resume their allegiance to the United States and to reinaugurate loyal state governments within, capital S, and for their respective states, capital S, therefore I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, notice he doesn't say United States of America, do proclaim, declare, and make known to all persons who have, directly or by implication, participated in the existing rebellion, except as herein after accepted, that a full pardon is hereby granted to them, and each of them, this is, Lincoln was going easy on them, he was being clement with restoration of all rights of property except as to slaves 
upon the condition that every such person shall take and subscribe an oath, the tenor and effect following to wit, I, blank, do solemnly swear, in the presence of Almighty God, that I will henceforth faithfully support, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Look at this. Notice this. Uh, Lincoln's original intended oath of readmission for Southerners did not make people a legal fiction. Check this out. And the union of the states, union is lowercase there, fascinating, thereunder, and that I will in like manner abide by and faithfully support all acts of Congress passed during the existing rebellion with reference to slaves, so long and so far as not repealed, modified, or held void by Congress, or by decision of the Supreme Court, and that I will, in like manner, abide by and faithfully support all proclamations of the President made during the existing rebellion, having reference to slaves, so long and so far as not modified or declared void by decision of the Supreme Court, so help me God. Well, there, that was Abe Lincoln's desired and proclaimed uh, oath that he was going to have Southerners take to get back into the Union, it, and it, it didn't have... I know Lincoln was... Uh, he's blamed a lot for all of the executive acts he took, and uh, uh, that does smack of, of uh, tyranny, I will admit. But on the other hand, at the end of the war, though, Lincoln was... He was the best friend the South had. I'm sorry. He was going to let them in without being brutalized, let them in without having to make themselves slaves and legal fictions. And he was going to not allow them to uh, become indebted. And all of that got crushed when Lincoln was assassinated and uh, the 14th Amendment was passed. There was a to takeover. The, there was uh, planted... At least the vast majority of Northern congressmen, senators, were in the pay of the bankers, quite obviously. I mean, did you ever think possibly that is why Abe Lincoln passed so many of the executive acts? Maybe he was doing, so, sometimes maybe he was just doing what he had to do just to get through to survive that war. I don't know. Um, on the other hand, he may have also had a conversion experience along the way. I've read accounts, brief accounts of that when he visited Gettysburg and saw the carnage that uh, he really had a conversion experience there. That, that's judging from what happened. That, 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 uh, I could maybe see that, judging from uh, how they had to get rid of him. Anyway, uh, considering with Considering, uh, or skipping down a little, this is still Lincoln's word. And I do further proclaim, declare, and make known that in the states, capital S, of Arkansas, Texas, all of those, all the same states, shall reestablish a state government, capital S, which shall be Republican. Here that Lincoln was going to let these folks in. And the same with Andrew Johnson. That's probably a big reason why Lincoln picked Andrew Johnson, so that to see that this would be carried out. How was Lincoln going to know that there was going to be a totalitarian takeover by a rump Congress, by a rump group of senators? Going back to Lincoln. And in no wise contravening said oath, such shall be recognized as the true government of the state. 
So that's it. Lincoln, folks, Lincoln was the only, he was the South's only ally at the end of that war, ironically, along, well, except for the vice president, Andrew Johnson. And then they tried to impeach him for carrying out Lincoln's wishes. And instead, they just beat, got, went around him, overrode his uh, veto. <laughs> Illegally, unlawfully, when they threw out, took over a bunch of other states. Imagine that. Okay, continuing, continuing with Abe Lincoln's words. This proclamation is intended to present the people of the states, capital S, wherein the national authority has been suspended and loyal state governments have been subverted, capital S, a mode and by which the national authority as loyal state governments, capital S, may be reestablished within said states, capital S. Give, this was given under my hand at the city of Washington, the 8th day of December, A.D. 1863. I think Lincoln doomed himself with that. That when he started monkeying around with the money with his greenbacks. I mean, if you listen to the David Athel book I just got through with, The Babylonian Woe, you don't mess with the bankers. You just don't do it. Not if you're a president. Okay, uh, this is the veto message. This is, okay, this, you got to hear this. This is the veto message of President Andrew Johnson. And you know what? This is so huge that I do have, I have listed a considerable amount, I, I highlighted a considerable, considerable amount of this footnote because, guys, you got to hear this. The Andrew Johnson, you got to hear what he was going through. The poor guy. Uh, and you know what? I think I'll, I'll, I'll call this a show. Uh, this will be it for this, this time. And I'll come back next week and read to you poor President Andrew Johnson's uh, words when he vetoed the 14th Amendment. I mean, that guy was between a rock and an extremely hard place here. And then the history smirches him because the bankers write the history. All right. Uh, we're told he was such a bad guy. He was not at all. You, you won't think so after you hear his words. Um, from 1867. All right, folks, uh, this has been Will the Real Government Please Stand Up? And we'll make this part one. I'm Gordon Comstock. This has been the Ministry of Truth. Over and out. I'm Gordon Comstock. This is the Ministry of Truth. This is part two, just wrapping it up, uh, of uh, part two of Will the Real Government Please Stand Up? by James Montgomery. We're into the footnotes now, but the footnotes have some incredible history that you've never been told before. Uh, one of the, maybe the highlight of it is the veto message by President Johnson, March 2nd, 1867. He, when he tried uh, to veto the 14th Amendment, which was really a totalitarian takeover by a rump Congress in the North, it was a coup d'etat, and uh, we're living under it now. We have the 14th Amendment, we, and it, it dictates that we, the average American, cannot question the national debt anymore. We're slaves. We're brickmakers. That's when they iced it. Actually, there was a lot, another little nail driven into the coffin in 1933 when the American citizens were legally declared enemies of the state. But uh, the Reconstruction Acts were horrific. And uh, 
President Andrew Johnson gets smirched in history, and now you know the reason. It's because he actually stood up to the bankers, actually tried to do his job. He was apparently a decent man. His veto speech was uh, full of passion, and he was pleading with these northern bought-off bankers, mannequins, bankers, mannequin, uh, uh, northern senators, pleading with them not to do this, to rip to shreds the uh, 1787 treaty with Britain that was the Constitution, um, the corporate charter. But they went ahead and did it, of course. Now, President Johnson does not... You can't go so far as to say he was heroic, or he would have taken it to the people. He would have taken, taken it to the streets vociferously if he was a hero, but, uh, you know, politicians are still ultimately politicians. He would have been assassinated, of course, just like Lincoln had he tried that, but uh, he was at least a decent man, and he uh, did try to stand up to them in his veto message. Let's, uh, Let's hear from this. Veto message by President Johnson, March 2nd, 1867. I have examined the bill to provide for the more efficient government of the so-called rebel states. I'm just going to read the highlights that uh, I've highlighted with my marker. I am unable to give it my assent for reasons so grave that I hope a statement of them may have some influence on the minds of the patriotic and enlightened men with whom the decision must ultimately rest. The bill places all the people of the ten states therein, named under the absolute domination of military rules, and the preamble undertakes to give the reason upon which the measure is based and the ground upon which it is justified. It declares that there exists in those states no legal governments and no adequate protection for life and property, and asserts the necessity of enforcing peace and good order within their limits. This is not true as a matter of fact. The states in question, capital S, have each of them an actual government with all the powers, executive, judicial, and legislative, which properly belong to a free state. They are organized like the other states of the Union, capital S, and like them they make, administer, and execute the laws which concern their domestic affairs. An existing de facto government exercising such functions as these is itself the law of the state upon all matters within its jurisdiction. To pronounce the supreme law-making power of an established state illegal is to say that law itself is unlawful. The provisions which these governments have made for the preservation of order, the suppression of crime, and the redress of private injuries are in substance and principle the same as those prevailing in the northern states and in other civilized countries. Skipping down, the bill, however, would seem to show upon its face, this is the 14th Amendment bill, that the establishment of peace and good order is not its real object. Skipping down. Sixth, the adoption of a certain amendment to the federal constitution. Skipping. Seventh, the adoption of said amendment by a sufficient number of other states to make it a part of the Constitution of the United States. 
All these conditions must be fulfilled before the people of any of these states can be relieved from the bondage of military domination. Skipping. The excuse given for the bill in the preamble. Skipping. But solely as a means of coercing the people into the adoption of principles and measures to which it is known that they are opposed and upon which they have an undeniable right to exercise their own judgment. I submit to Congress whether this measure is not, in its whole character, scope, and object, without precedent and without authority, in palpable conflict with the plainest provisions of liberty and humanity for which our ancestors on both sides of the Atlantic have shed so much blood and expended so much treasure. The ten states named in the bill are divided into five districts. For each district, an officer of the army, not below the rank of a brigadier general, is to be appointed to rule over the people, and he is to be supported with an efficient military force to enable him to perform his duties and enforce his authority. Those duties and that authority, as defined by the third section of the bill, are to protect all persons in their rights of person or property, to suppress insurrection, disorder, and violence, and to punish or cause to be punished all disturbers of the public peace or criminals. The power thus given to commanding officer over all the people of each district is that of an absolute monarch. His mere will is to take the place of all law. It is plain that the authority here given to the military officer amounts to absolute despotism. But to make it still more unendurable, the bill provides that it may be delegated to as many subordinates as he chooses to appoint, for it declares that he shall punish or cause to be punished. Such a power has not been wielded by any monarch in England for more than 500 years. In all that time, no people who speak the English language have borne such servitude. It reduces the whole population of the ten states, all persons of every color, sex, and condition, and every stranger within their limits, to the most abject and degrading slavery. No master ever had a control so absolute over the slaves as this bill gives to the military officers, over both white and colored persons. <laughs> So much for the so-called civil war being fought over slavery, huh? Skipping down. Have we the power to establish and carry into execution a measure like this? I answer, certainly not. Skipping down. Some persons assume that the success of our arms in crushing the opposition, which was made in some of the states, reduced those states and all their people the innocent as well as the guilty, to the condition of vassalage. Skipping. No fallacy can be more transparent than this. Our victories subjected the insurgents to legal obedience, not to the yoke of an arbitrary despotism. When an absolute sovereign reduces his rebellious subjects, he may deal with them according to his pleasure, because he had that power before. But when a limited monarch puts down an insurrection, he must still govern according to law. 
This is a bill passed by Congress in time of peace. There is not in any one of the states brought under its operation either war or insurrection. The laws of the states and of the federal government are all in undisturbed and harmonious operation. Skipping. What then is the ground on which this bill proceeds? The title of the bill announces that it is intended for the more efficient government of these ten states. It is recited by way of preamble that no legal state governments nor adequate protection for life or property exist in those states, and that peace and good order should be thus recitals, which prepare the way for martial law. Is this that the only foundation upon which martial law can exist under our form of government is not stated or so much as pretended? Actual war, foreign invasion, domestic insurrection, none of these appear. And none of these, in fact, exist. It is not even recited that any sort of war or insurrection is threatened. Skipping. A recent decision of the Supreme Court of the United States. Skipping. The opinion of the majority of the court. Martial law cannot arise from a threatened invasion. The necessity must be actual and present. The invasion real such as effectually closes the courts and deposes the civil administration. We see that martial law come in only when actual war closes the courts and deposes the civil authority. But this bill, in time of peace, makes martial law operate as though we were in actual war and becomes the cause instead of the consequences of the abrogation of civil authority. One more quotation. It follows from what has been said on this subject that there are occasions when martial law can be properly applied. If in foreign invasion or civil war the courts are actually closed and it is impossible to administer criminal justice according to law, then on the theater of active military operations where war really prevails, there is a necessity to furnish a substitute for the civil authority thus overthrown, to preserve the safety of the army and society. And as no power is left by the military, it is allowed to govern by martial rule until the laws can have their free course. My gosh, both the executive and the judiciary apparently tried to stop this rump congress Apparently, they didn't try hard enough, though, you know. I now, continuing with Andrew Johnson's words, I now quote from the opinion of the minority of the court, delivered by Chief Justice Chase, we by no means assert that Congress can establish and apply the laws of war where no war has been declared or exists. Where peace exists, the laws of peace must prevail. Skipping. Peace exists in all the territory to which this bill applies. It asserts a power in Congress in time of peace to set aside the laws of peace and substitute the laws of war. The minority, concurring with the majority, declares that Congress does not possess that power. Skipping forward. This bill, 
authorizes an arrest without warrant at pleasure of a military commander. This bill holds every person, not a soldier, answerable for all crimes and all charges without any presentiment. This bill sets aside all process of law and makes the citizen answerable in his person and property to the will of one man, and as to his life, to the will of two. This bill declares martial law in time of peace and authorizes the military to make the arrest and gives to the prisoner only one privilege, and that is trial without unnecessary delay, whatever that is, right? He has no hope of release from custody, except the hope, such as it is, of release by acquittal before a military commission. You know, this is kind of creepy, because aren't we, uh, post 9-11, aren't we getting back to this military tribunal thing? Uh, that's It's just reconstruction, folks. It's been here ever since. They just haven't had to dredge it out uh, from since the Reconstruction. But it's always been a power that they've taken upon themselves since the Reconstruction, and they can always bring it back. Looks like they're bringing it back. Getting back to Andrew Johnson's decrying of this bill. The United States are bound to guarantee to each state a Republican form of government. Can it be pretended that this obligation is not palpably broken if we carry out a measure like this, which wipes away every vestige of Republican government in ten states and puts the life, property, and honor of all people in each of them under domination of a single person clothed with unlimited authority? Here is a bill of attainder against nine million people at once. It is based upon an accusation so vague as to be scarcely intelligible and found to be true upon no credible evidence. Not one of the nine million was heard in his own defense. The representatives of the doomed parties were excluded from all participation in the trial. The conviction is to be followed by the most ignominious punishment ever inflicted on large messes of men. It disenfranchises them by hundreds of thousands and degrades them all, even those who are admitted to be guiltless from the rank of free man to the condition of slaves. The purpose and object of the bill, the general intent which pervades it from beginning to end, is to change the entire structure and character of the state governments and to compel them by force to the adoption of organic laws and regulations which they are unwilling to accept if left to themselves. The Negroes have not asked for the privilege of voting. The vast majority of them have no idea what it means. This bill not only thrusts it into their hands, but compels them, as well as the whites, to use it in a particular way. Skipping. Neither blacks nor whites can be relieved from the slavery which the bill imposes upon them. Skipping. The federal government has no jurisdiction, authority, or power to regulate such subjects for any state. Skipping forward that the measure proposed by this bill does violate the Constitution in the particulars mentioned 
and in many other ways which I forbear to enumerate, is too clear to admit the least doubt. It only remains to consider whether the injunctions of that instrument ought to be obeyed or not. Skipping forward. Shall we now acknowledge that we sacrificed a million lives and expended billions of treasure to enforce a constitution which is not worthy of respect and preservation? Well, that was well said. It is a part of our public history which can never be forgotten that both houses of Congress in July 1861 declared in the form of a soul man resolution that the war was and should be carried on for no purpose of subjugation but solely to enforce the constitutional rights of the states and of individuals unimpaired. This resolution was adopted and sent forth to the world unanimously by the Senate and with only two dissenting voices in the House. It was accepted by the Friends of the Union in the South as well as in the North as expressing honestly and truly the object of the war. So in other words, the Northern Senators flat out lied about their object in pursuing the so-called Civil War. It was all about con conquest for them, for the bankers, of course, their bosses. But uh, here in 1861, they declared that it was not about that. So they, they perjured themselves. That, well, they weren't under oath. Well, were they? I don't know. Anyway, they lied. On the faith of it, many thousands of persons in both sections gave their lives and their fortunes to the cause to repudiate it now by refusing to the states and to the individuals within them the rights which the Constitution and laws of the Union would secure to them, and uh, the rights Montgomery has in quotes here, is a breach of our plighted honor for which I can imagine no excuse and to which I cannot voluntarily become a party. Skipping forward. Among the most sacred guarantees of that instrument are those which declare that each state shall have at least one representative, and that no state, without its consent, shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. Skipping forward. Not only hurting the life of the present generation, but for ages to come. Skipping. The destiny of themselves and their children. At present, ten states are denied representation. And when... Sixteen states will be without a voice in the House of Representatives. Skipping this grave fact, a course of legislation which fails to consider the rights it transgresses, the law which it violates, or the institutions which it imperils. Wow. Uh, Andrew Johnson was on fire in this speech. He really, at least within the walls of... Congress, within the White House, he really pleaded with these people, don't do this. But the rump Congress of the North overrode him. You just, when I read this, I just, I wish that Andrew Johnson would have just taken it to the streets if he was that upset, which he should have been, apparently. At any rate, that's what uh, Andrew Johnson had to say. 
At the time, the Reconstruction Acts were railroaded through Congress by a conquering rump Congress. Okay, there are, I want to read some highlights from footnote 11 that Montgomery has in here. This apparently is a letter from James Montgomery to his local sheriff in North Carolina. This, uh, I think you'll find this interesting. And I won't read it all, just uh, highlights here. Starts it out, dear sheriff, I just want to say at the outset that your reputation precedes you, blah, blah, blah. Then he gets into the meat a few sentences down. The Constitution was a commercial compact between states, giving the federal government limited powers. The Bill of Rights was not meant as a source of rights, but as further limitations on the federal government. Our forefathers saw the potential for danger in the U.S. Constitution. To ensure the Constitution was not presumed to be our source of rights, the Tenth Amendment was added. I will use a quote from Thomas Jefferson from February 15, 1791, where Thomas Jefferson quotes the Tenth Amendment. Quote, I consider the foundation of the Constitution as laid on this ground, that all powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states or to the people, and that's a lowercase p in people, to, unquote. Oh, no, this is still Jefferson. He's got a, another quote in here. Uh, continuing with Jefferson's quote, to take a single step beyond the boundaries thus specially drawn around the powers of Congress is to take possession of a boundless field of power no longer susceptible of any definition, unquote. Now we pick it up again with Montgomery talking to the sheriff. Three forms of law were granted to the Constitution, common law, equity or contract law, and admiralty law. Each had their own jurisdiction and purpose. The first issue I want to cover is the United States flag. Obviously, from known history, our flag did not have a yellow fringe bordering three sides. The United States did not start putting flags with a yellow fringe on them in government buildings and public buildings until the 1900s. Why did it change? Are there any legal meanings behind it? Oh, yes. First, the appearance of our flag is defined in Title IV, Section 1, United States Code, uh, and it just has, uh, it describes the flag, it, and it says, well, I'll read it, part of it. A footnote, uh, a placing of fringe on the national flag, the dimensions of the flag, and arrangement of the stars are matters of detail, not controlled by statute, but within the discretion of the president as commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy. The president, as military commander, this is Montgomery now, can add a yellow fringe to our flag. When would this be done? During a time of war. Why? Because a flag with a fringe is an ensign, a military flag. And then another quote here, pursuant to U.S. Code Chapter 123, Executive Order Number 10834, August 21st, 1959, a military flag 
is a flag that resembles the regular flag of the United States, except that it has a yellow fringe bordered on three sides. The President of the United States designates this deviation from the regular flag by executive order and in his capacity as Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces. Uh, this quote is from the National Encyclopedia, Volume 4, from a, and just a couple of highlights from this. From a military standpoint, flags are of two general classes. And it says the military kind has a with a knotted fringe of yellow on three sides is a military flag. Back to Montgomery. The reason I started with the flag issue is because it is so easy to grasp. The main problem I have with the yellow fringe is that by its use, our constitutional republic is no more. Our system of law was changed without the public's knowledge. It was kept secret. This is fraud. The American people were allowed to believe this was just a decoration. Because the law changed from common law, or God's law, to admiralty law, or king's law, your status also changed from sovereign to subject. From being able to own property, a lodial title, to not owning property, tenant of the land, if you think you own your property, stop paying taxes. It will be taken under the prize law. This is a quote from Senate document number 43. The ultimate ownership of all property is in the state. Individual so-called ownership is only by virtue of government, i.e. law, amounting to a mere user. That's Senate document number 43, written in 1933, when Americans were declared enemies of the state by lovely FDR. Uh, back to Montgomery's words. By our allowing to let these military flags fly, the American people have admitted our defeat and loss of status. Remember, the Constitution recognizes three forms of law. Being governed by the law of the flag is admiralty law, law of the flag. And this comes from Bouvier's Law Dictionary, 1914. Law of the flag, the flag at the masthead, is noticed to all the world of the extent of such power to bind the owners or freighters by his act. The foreigner who deals with this agent has notice of that law, and if he be bound by it, there is not injustice. His notice is the national flag which is hoisted. Back to Montgomery. Don't be thrown by the fact they are talking about the sea. Admiralty has come onto land. And this quote comes from Roostrat versus People, whatever year this happened. Quote, pursuant to the law of the flag, a military flag does result in jurisdictional implication when flown. Back to Montgomery's words. When you walk into a court and see this flag, you are put on notice that you are in an admiralty court and the king is in control. Also, if there is a king, the people are no longer sovereign. 
skipping forward. Admiralty law is for the sea. Maritime law governs contracts between parties that trade over the sea. Well, that's what our forefathers intended. However, in 1845, Congress passed an act saying admiralty law could come onto land. The bill may be traced in Congress. Uh, 28th Congress, second session, 43. The year 1844-1845, no opposition to the act is reported. Congress held a committee on this subject in 1850, and they said, quote, the committee also alluded to the great force of the great constitutional question as to the power of Congress to extend maritime jurisdiction beyond the ground occupied by it at the adoption of the Constitution, unquote. Back to Montgomery. It was up to the Supreme Court to stop Congress at that moment and tell them no. The Constitution did not give you that power, nor was it intended. But no, the courts began a long train of abuses. Here are some excerpts from a few court cases. Quote, this power is as extensive upon land as upon water. The Constitution makes no distinction in that respect. And if the admiralty jurisdiction in matters of contract and tort which the courts of the United States may lawfully exercise on the high seas, can be extended to the lakes upon the power to regulate commerce, it can, with the same propriety and upon the same construction, be extended to contracts and torts on land when the commerce is between different states, capital S. And it may embrace also the vehicles, and persons engaged in carrying it on. It would be in the power of Congress to confer admiralty jurisdiction upon its courts over the cars engaged in transporting passengers or merchandise from one state to another, capital S, and over the persons engaged in conducting them and deny to the parties the trial by jury. Now the judicial power in cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction has never been supposed to extend to contracts made on land and to be executed on land. But if the power of regulating commerce can be made the foundation of jurisdiction in its courts and a new and extended admiralty jurisdiction beyond its heretofore known and admitted limits, may be created on water under that authority, the same reason would justify the same exercise of power on land. Unquote that from 1851 from Propeller Genesee Chief et al. versus Fitzhugh et al. Next court case is from Jackson versus Magnolia in 1852. Quote, Next to revenue taxes itself, the late extensions of the jurisdiction of the admiralty are our greatest grievance. The, listen up, folks. This is the origin of admiralty law on land in this country. The, 1852. 
the American courts of admiralty seem to be forming by degrees into a system that is to overturn our Constitution and to deprive us of our best inheritance, the laws of the land. It would be thought in England a dangerous innovation if the trial of any matter on land was given to the admiralty. Unquote. Jackson versus Magnolia, 1852. Back to Montgomery. This began the most dangerous precedent of all the insular cases. This is where Congress took a boundless field of power. When legislating for the states, they are bound by the Constitution. When legislating for their insular possessions, they are not restricted in any way by the Constitution. Uh, the following is from the Harvard Law Review, Our New Possessions. Congress apparently created... Okay, these courts, then, are not constitutional courts. They are legislative courts, created in virtue of that clause which enables Congress to make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory belonging to the United States, capital S. There you see Congress created its own court system outside the Constitution, according to the Harvard Law Review. Uh, here are some court cases that make it even clearer, uh, this crooked dual court system when it was established. This is from 1945, a court case, Hooven and Allison and Company versus Evett. Quote, in exercising this power, Congress is not subject to the same constitutional li li <laughs> limitations as when it is legislating for the United States. And it cites insular possessions. Uh, skipping. Oh, no, this is a different court case now. This is 1901, Downs versus Bidwell. Quote, we have in this country substantially or practically two national governments, one to be maintained under the Constitution with all its restrictions, the other to be maintained by Congress outside and independently of that instrument by exercising such powers as other nations of the earth are accustomed to exercise. If the principle thus announced should ever receive the sanction of a majority of this court, a radical and mischievous change in our system of government will be the result. We will, in that event, pass from the era of constitutional liberty, guarded and protected by a written constitution, into an era of legislative absolutism. There you go. It will be an evil day for the American liberty if the theory of a government outside of the supreme law of the land finds lodgment in our constitutional jurisprudence. Unquote. Downs versus, Downs versus Bidwell, 1901. Back to the words of James Montgomery. These actions allowed admiralty law to come onto land. Remember the definition of the law of the flag. When you receive benefits or enter into contracts with the king, you come under his law, which is admiralty law. Now we're getting into the adhesion contracts, which bind us all, just about all of us now, and render us slavish brickmakers for Pharaoh. Well, your 501c3 pastor says on Sunday, what a free country this is. 
All right, going back to Montgomery. And what is a result of your connection with the king? A loss of your sovereign status. Our ignorance of the law is no excuse. I'll give you an example, something you deal with every day. Let's say you give me a seatbelt ticket. What law did I violate? Remember the Constitution recognizes three forms of law. Was it common law? Who is the injured party? No one. So it could not have been common law. Was it equity law? No, there is no contract in dispute. Driving is a privilege granted by the king. If it were a contract, the UCC would apply, and it doesn't. In a contract, both parties have equal rights. In a privilege, you do as you are told, or the privilege is revoked. Well, guess what? There is only one form of law left, admiralty. Ask yourself, when did licenses begin to be required? And the year is 1933. All district courts are admiralty courts. See the Judiciary Act of 1789. The following quote is from the 1847 court case Waring versus Clark and Howard. Quote, district courts acting as instance courts of admiralty, the Act of 1789 gives the entire constitutional power to determine all civil causes of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, leaving the courts to ascertain its limits, unquote. Back to James Montgomery's words. When you enter a courtroom, and come before the judge, and the U.S. flag with the yellow fringe is flying, you are put on notice of the law you are in. Americans aren't aware of this, so they continue to claim constitutional rights. In the admiralty setting, the Constitution does not apply, and the judge, if pushed, will inform you of this by placing you under contempt for continuing to bring it up. If the judge is pressed, his name for this hidden law is statutory law. Where are the rules and regulations for statutory law kept? They don't exist. If statutory law existed, there would be rules and regulations governing its procedures and court rules. They do not exist. The way you know this is admiralty is from the yellow-fringed flag and from the actions of the law, i.e. compelled performance, which is admiralty. The judges can still move at common law for cases like murder, etc., and equity for contract disputes, etc. It's all up to the type of case brought before the court. The courts and rules of all three jurisdictions have been blended. Under admiralty, you are compelled to perform under the agreement you made by asking and receiving the king's government, i.e. license. You receive the benefit of driving on federal roads, which are military roads. So you have voluntarily obligated yourself to this system of law 
And this is why you are compelled to obey. If you don't, it will cost you money or jail time or both. The type of offense determines the jurisdiction you come under. But the court itself is an admiralty court defined by the flag. Driving without a seatbelt under Chapter 20 DMV Code carries a criminal penalty for a non-common law offense. Again, where is the injured party or parties? There is none. This is admiralty law, the roads being military. Skipping forward, a military road through the territories of the United States. Skipping forward, the government, ever since its origin, has been in the constant practice of constructing military roads. Uh, that is actually a quote from President James Buchanan, 1857, in his inaugural address. Back to James Montgomery. The Social Security Act, the nexus agreement you have with the king. You were told the Social Security number was for retirement, and you had to have it to work. Sounds like a license to me, and it is. It is a license granted by the president to work in this country under the Trading with the Enemy Act, as amended on March 9, 1933. What does FICA stand for? Federal Insurance Contribution Act. What does contribution mean at law? Not the Webster's Dictionary. This is where they were able to get you to admit that you were jointly responsible for the national debt and you declared that you were a 14th Amendment citizen. Skipping forward, read the following definition to learn what it means to have a social security number and pay a contribution. Definition of a contribution from Black's Law Dictionary, 6th edition. Contribution, quote, the right of one who has discharged a common liability to recover of another also liable. Under principle of contribution, a tortfeasor against whom a judgment is rendered, uh, you get the idea. Contribution means you were enslaved. All right, uh, skipping to uh, James Montgomery's next paragraph here. Guess what? It gets worse. What does this date, 1933, mean to you? Well, you better sit down, Sheriff. First, remember World War One. In 1917, President Wilson declared the War Powers Act of October 6, 1917. The War Powers Act basically stating that he was stopping all trade with the enemy except for those he granted a license for, excluding Americans. Read the following from this Treating with the Enemy Act, where he defines enemy. In the War Powers Act of 1917, Chapter 106, Section 2C, it says that these declared war powers did not affect citizens of the United States. Here, wow, Woodrow Wilson will admit in legalese that the U.S. is at war with its own citizenry, is the note I made. Let me see. Uh, skipping, this is Woodrow Wilson's quote, subjects of any nation with which the United States is at war, 
other than citizens of the United States. <laughs> Did he just declare <laughs> that the U.S. citizens are subjects? He declared that, and he declared that that the United States, meaning the corporation, is at war with citizens of the United States. That is legalese par excellence, is it not? Oh, boy. Getting back to Montgomery. Now, this leads up to 1933. Our country was recovering from a depression and now was declared bankrupt. And uh, skipping down. Before 1933, all contracts with the government were payable in gold. Skipping. To keep from being hung by the American public, I guess he means hanged, they obeyed the banksters' demands and turned over our country to them. They never came out and said we were, talking about the politicians, I guess, they never came out and said we were in bankruptcy, but the fact remains we were and are. In 1933, the gold of the whole country had to be turned in to the banksters, and all government contracts in gold were canceled. This is bankruptcy. Uh, and then here we have a quote from Congressman Trafficant from 1993. Mr. Speaker, we are here now in Chapter 11. Members of Congress are official trustees presiding over the greatest reorganization of any bankrupt entity in world history, the U.S. government. And Congressman Trafficant was thrown in jail subsequ shortly subsequent to saying that on the House floor in 1993. Uh, forward. Montgomery now, the wealth of the nation, including our land, was turned over to the bankers, banksters, sorry. In return, the nation's $100 billion debt was forgiven. The Congress of 1933 sold every American into slavery to protect their own asses. Uh, skipping forward, what did Roosevelt do? He sealed our fate and our children's fate. But worst of all, he declared war on the American people. Remember the War Powers Act, the Trading with the Enemy Act, during Wilson's regime. He declared emergency powers, oh, FDR declared emergency powers with his authority being the War Powers Act, the Trading with the Enemies Act. The problem is, he redefined who the enemy was. Read the following. Yeah, and remember what he said about the Social Security number being a license to work, huh? Uh, quote, the declared national emergency of March 9, 1933, amended the War Powers Act to include the American people as enemies. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, Section 2, Subdivision D, it's all here if you want to read this for yourself. But uh, I'm just reading the, the content. I'm not going to read the numbers and the pages. Uh, quote, emergency declared by the president, the president may, through any agency that he may designate or otherwise, investigate, regulate, or prohibit under such rules and regulations as he may prescribe by means of licenses or otherwise, any transactions in foreign exchange, transfers of credit between or payments by banking institutions as defined by the president, and export, hoarding, 
melting or earmarking of gold or silver coin or bullion or currency, now get this, by any person within the United States or any place subject to the jurisdiction thereof. He just declared war on Americans. Uh, here is the legal phrase subject to the jurisdiction thereof. At law, this refers to an alien enemy and also applies to 14th Amendment citizens. And he gives this uh, Valentine's Law Dictionary. He confirms that. Uh, skipping forward, uh, the following are excerpts from the Senate Report, 93rd Congress, November 19th, 1973, Special Committee on the Termination of the National Emergency United States Senate. This is from 73. They are going to terminate all emergency powers, but they found out they did not have the power to do this. So guess which one stayed in? The Emergency Act of 1933, the Trading with the Enemy Act, October 6, 1917, as amended in 1933. This is from the Senate Report, 93rd Congress, November 19, 1973. Quote, since March 9, 1933, the United States has been in a state of declared national emergency. Under the powers delegated by these statutes, the President may seize property, organize and control the means of production, seize commodities, Assign military forces abroad. Institute martial law. They can do that whenever, folks. It's all lawful for them, legal for them now. Seize and control all transportation and communication. Regulate the operation of private enterprise. Restrict travel. And in a plethora of particular ways, control the lives of all American citizens. A majority of the people of the United States have lived all their lives under emergency rule. For 40 years, freedoms and governmental procedures guaranteed by the Constitution have, in varying degrees, been abridged by laws brought into force by states of national emergency from at least the Civil War. In important ways, shape the present phenomenon of a permanent state of national emergency. And uh, Montgomery just cites various law dictionaries showing how alien enemy is an, one who owes allegiance to the adverse belligerent. So citizens, American citizens, you are alien enemies. You are adverse belligerents. Skipping to uh, Montgomery's next footnote, uh, footnote 12, some highlights. This is interesting. This is from the court case Diet versus Turner doesn't say the year, but it gets into a little more specifics about the senator from New Jersey who originally voted in favor of the, the 14th Amendment, but then uh, rescinded his vote when he saw the, what they were doing uh, criminally to, against the southern states. He said, I want no part of this. And so they threw this New Jersey northern senator out. Uh, this is good. It, it tells you his name and, and some, of the more, some of the details behind it. Uh, all of the 22 senators and 58 representatives from the southern states were denied seats. Uh, joint resolution number 48 proposing the 14th Amendment. A count of noses showed that only 33 senators were favorable to the measure. 
and 33 was a far cry from two-thirds of 72 and lacked one of being two-thirds of the 50 seated senators. While it requires only a majority of votes to refuse a seat to a senator, it requires a two-thirds majority to unseat a member once he is seated. See Article 1, Section 5, Constitution. One John P. Stockton was seated on December 5, 1865, as one of the senators from New Jersey. He was outspoken in his opposition to Joint Resolution Number 48, proposing the 14th Amendment. The leadership in the Senate, not having control of two-thirds of the seated senators, voted to refuse to seat Mr. Stockton upon the ground that he had received only a plurality and not a majority of the votes of the New Jersey legislature. It was the law of New Jersey and several other states that a plurality vote was sufficient for election. Besides, the senator had already been seated. Nevertheless, his seat was refused, and the 33 favorable votes thus became the required two-thirds of the 49 members of the Senate. In the House of Representatives, it would require 122 votes to be two-thirds of the 182 members seated. Only 120 voted for the proposed amendment, but because there were 30 abstentions, it was declared to have been passed by a two-thirds vote of the House. They, they called the abstentions uh, yes votes. What a coup d'etat. This is interesting. A little addendum uh, is footnote 13 that James Montgomery puts in here. He says he just discovered the following two end notes, and they completely confirm in a very final way his research in uh, British Colony Parts 1 and 2 and 3. Uh, okay, let's get into this and read the highlights. Quote, uh, it doesn't say where this is from. I'll just read it. The two main issues, as I see them, in British Colony are... This must be... This is uh, this is Montgomery's writing. I don't know why he put quotes in them. Anyway, the two main issues, as I see them, in British Colony are... One, the financial obligations of the 1213 Charter are still in effect. 1213. Along with the charters establishing America. Two... The last sentence of the 1689 Bill of Rights proved the following. Uh, that, here goes. That the charters of the colonies could never be overturned by a declaration of independence. You hear that, constitutionalists? The charters of the colonies could never be overturned by a declaration of independence or the 1787 treaty called the Constitution. I'm talking about the real subject matter, which is financial obligation. We got that saying we always throw around, follow the money, it's all about the money. But we don't put that to use and remember that statement when we're talking about our own government and our own origins. It's all about the money. You can't get away from that. Follow the money. We're not going to let us declare declare independence and let us off from financial obligation. Think about it for a second. Britain had the biggest 
uh, Navy at the time. They could have blockaded the colonies and starved them out at any moment. Washington won a battle at Yorktown. They did not win the war. And it probably was a Masonic deal. Again, some of those battles were fought by the British with one hand behind their back. There's a Cornwallis. He, he led it. He fought it very perfunctorily. He threw balls and had dances with posh ladies in the colonies instead of pursuing the battles. Come on. And then the, the thing that's really phony to me, the French, the French fleet coming just in time at Yorktown to defeat the British. Can you name one other single instance in history where the French Navy defeated the British? Never happened. Never, never, never happened. Uh, and you're telling me you believe, though, that one instance? Come on. It reeks of, 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 of secret handshake, backdoor room, lawyerly, Freemasonic deals. Okay, back to Montgomery. Title for the land was transferred to the states and then ceded by charter to the federal government under Sestui Quay Trust. But the contracted debt and obligation of the colonial charters and the 1213 Charter could not be negated. Rights could be granted to the citizens, subjects, or combatants, whichever the case may be, but financial obligation cannot, nor could not be affected, because it involves parties not yet born. This is why King Charles I said, the 1689 Bill of Rights would not free the kingdom from the obligation of the 1213 Charter. This is why the United States Bank was given the right of charter in America. George Washington had no choice but to succumb to the Rothschild's point man, Hamilton. Talk about deja vu. I mean, does this not sound familiar? Our Bill of Rights was given to us to give us the illusion of freedom when the tax obligation of the charters marched along unimpeded and unseen by Americans and Britons alike. Read the Magna Carta again. They wanted the Pope's blessing for the 1215 Charter. This same Pope is the Pope in the 1213 Charter, where England and Ireland were given to him. He could not just give back his land, because of other parties not yet born. The Pope let the barons presume they were free and gave his blessing to the 1215 Magna Carta, knowing to do so would in no way lawfully overturn the grants made to him in the 1213 Charter. The Magna Carta is a worthless document, the same as the Declaration of Independence. How can a charter be made void if parties to the charter will never cease to be born? Yeah, the Pope's, well, yeah, Pope's descendants is right. Uh, physical as well as nom nominational. Uh, but also descendants of the king. There will always be one, so how can the charter ever be made void? It, it was given to that lineage. Uh, next footnote is the 
King John's concession of England and Ireland to the Pope. I'll just read one line. This does it, folks. King John's concession to the Pope made England a fiefdom to Rome. King John, in 1213, gave England to the Pope. So it doesn't matter that King John signed off on the Magna Carta a couple of years after that. Uh, well, it doesn't matter for two reasons. Number one, it, it was a document signed under duress, so it's, it's unlawful for that reason. But uh, he, he also, England was not his to give. He couldn't give any rights to these barons. He pretended to. And thus we have the Magna Carta, a worthless document. Pretense. Same thing as the Declaration of Independence. That's why James Montgomery asked the question, does this sound familiar? All right, uh, and that is, that's it. That is uh, part two, and that, that finishes uh, chapter three of the online book, the, Un the United States is Still a British Colony. Chapter three was entitled, Will the Real Government Please Stand Up? Right. A lot of information there. <laughs> A lot of information. Hopefully it makes clear one thing. We're part of the Roman Empire. Britain, United States, whatever it is, whatever you want to call it, whatever country you're quote-unquote living in, you're part of the Roman Empire. Anyways, I'm going to... Oh, the other thing I wanted to bring up too is uh, supposedly they banned the Confederate flag. One more example of how they're erasing our past. Whether you feel it's a symbolism or racism or whatever, the truth of the matter is, if one more example, folks, our, our past is being erased again. They don't care about that as a symbol of, of racism, about black and white. They're erasing our past because they're going to create a new country. And we're going to be a third world country. In fact, we're not even going to be the same country. When they're all said and done with us, we better accept that. We better get right with God and put our faith in God and not man in man's institutions. Because we're making a dreadful mistake if we do otherwise. As we've learned from this past couple of recordings, uh, we never even won the Revolutionary War. That's the reality of it. That's the brutal reality of it. Let's see. Before I go, I'll close, let's close with this question. From the United States, is still a British colony. The, the, the article asked this question. I wonder if you have seen the main or obvious point. This treaty was signed in 1783. The war was over in 1781. If the United States defeated England, how is the king granting rights to America when we were now his equal in status? We supposedly defeated him in the Revolutionary War. So why would the supposed patriot Americans sign such a treaty when they knew that this would avoid any sovereignty gained by the Declaration of Independence and the Revolutionary War. If we had won the Revolutionary War, the, the king granting us our land would, be, would not be necessary. It would have been 
ours by his laws of the Revolutionary War to not to not dictate the terms of a peace treaty in a position of strength after winning a war means the war was never won. Think of other wars we have won, such as when we defeated Japan. Did MacArthur allow Japan to dictate to him the terms of surrender or forced surrender? No way. All these men did is gain status and privilege granted by the king and ensure the subjection of future unaware generations. Worst of all, they sold out those that gave their lives and property for the chance to be free. Yes, folks, who were the big winners of this? It was the founding fathers. It was their ilk. Land speculators and lawyers and the privileged already. They're the only ones that want anything. That constitution protects them. You never, it doesn't protect you or I. That's the reality. And the Bill of Rights are just there for window dressing to make you think that you have a right, that you have rights. You have privileges, and they can take them away from you. I'm not happy to say that. That doesn't make me happy at all. But that's the truth. And this show is about nothing but the truth, and that's what I'm out to look for, and that is the truth. So in an hour, I will go back, and we'll do another recording of this, finish it up, and then, uh, then we'll move on to other things. So if I need to recharge my batteries and uh, heat something. and So if you want to, Andrew, you can always come back in an hour. If not, you can always hear it in the future. But thank you for joining me, Andrew. Uh, Shadow Girl, if you hear this, thank you for joining me and all the other people that popped in and out. So, uh, and all those who listen to the future, remember to download these and pass them on to other people. You're hearing the truth. The truth. But you're not going to hear from anywhere else, it seems that way. You know? You'll hear parts of the truth. You'll hear part of the story, but will you hear the whole story? You know, I'm trying not to prove to you that I'm right. I just want to know the truth, just like you. So Maybe that's the difference between me and others. I don't know. Not that I'm anything better, but just an approach. Anyways, God bless. Take care. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.